Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. All right, Tim, we got to record this. Go ahead. Okay. So we're talking about last names before we come on the air. And of course, anyone who's seen my last name knows what it's spelled like. It's spelled like loser, but uh, second or third grade, we were having our uh, reading, reading lessons in elementary school and the teacher says, all right, it's your turn to read my <laughs> pass- paragraph or something. Yeah. Like yeah. That. You have to read a paragraph. And she passed over to me and in the paragraph is the word loser. And of course, I just roll right through it and say, you know, whatever, 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 loser, and keep on going through. And the teacher, <laughs> of course, thinks it's absolutely hilarious. None of the kids in the class know because they're not confident of readers. But to me, that's that's, nice. that's what it spells. Yeah, which like, you know, interesting to me because Tim and I have been friends now. We've known each other for 11 years. It's it's loser. It's loser. So when I when I look at the name, when I look at the word, you've messed with me, Tim. Anyways. <laughs> we we don't have losers on this show. We have winners. One of go. those winners is Mr. John Farrell, who moved to Montana sight unseen four months ago as the CEO for an up and comer. By the way, I want to point well, out database. He, he moved to Montana in September. This is right yeah. before, you know, Snowmageddon's getting ready to happen to him. <laughs> That's a great intro. I absolutely love that intro. No, that it's it's been a it's been a interesting transition. I lived in Houston, Texas for 20 years and uh, saw snow zero times. And then we move here and then Houston gets snow and we it was like 55 degrees here and really nice. So I don't know what I did. I mean, you know, I'm a four seasons guy, Tim. I know you grew up just on the Rio Grande down there in South Texas, but for me. I was used to four seasons and that really Colorado, if you're going to live in a four seasons place is probably the best. I mean, I guess maybe somewhere in California, sort of. Well, I don't know about John, but Houston has, Houston has four seasons, summer, December, January, and February. That's smart. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Although last weekend, second episode recording this week, last weekend at the crawfish boil, still buzzing about that. That was a ton of fun. John, we would have seen you there if you still lived in Houston, but you decided to move to Montana. So what, yeah. what prompted this middle of COVID? You got a startup that's, that's pulling in some revenue, getting some eyeballs, and you decide, me and my family, we're going to Montana. You know, it's funny because the, the pandemic hits, you know, and in the, in the beginning, we all jumped on board. We're like, oh, yeah, we got to stay home. And it was all fine. We're software. We work remotely kind of in and out as we see fit. But um, you know, we get through March or whatever and into April and like, I'm going back to the office. And so I do. Um, but you know, the kind of mandate, anyone can work wherever, you know, if you feel comfortable. And I went and worked at the office by myself for a solid four or five months. And I was just like, what am I doing? This is wait, 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 wait. Hold, ridiculous. Hold on, hold on, hold on. He has a wife and four kids. So going yeah, to yeah. the office may have been somewhat of a respite during COVID. Let's get that out there too. No, that's true. I actually have five kids, by the way. One's just what? grown now, so I don't I just don't want to leave I just, them out. I just shortchanged. I just shortchanged yeah. it. I don't yeah, know, that's it. No. too aggressive. That's it. <laughs> no, you go you to the do, office yeah. so you can be more productive. Well, and it's true. It's not. You know, I'm not denying that for sure. But I just, you know, we're we're paying this office bill where no one's coming in but me, and I'm just like, what am I doing? This is a waste of time. And so our lease was coming up. 
And so me and me and the co-founders, we were chatting. We were like, look, are we doing this? Are we going to keep paying, you know, thousands of dollars a month for rent at an office that sits empty all the time? Um, you know, it's been precedent's been set for remote work companies or a software company. Honestly, we've done really well in this remote working environment. And so we decided to shut it down. We all going to work from home. Um, and then, you know, it's like if I'm just working from home, I'm moving somewhere pretty. And so that's it. We we looked at the map. We said, I want to see mountains. Oh, yeah. I want to see four seasons. You know, we threw a dart, visited uh, Bitterroot Valley in Montana. Thought it was great. Uh, we did. We bought the house sight unseen. It was a. It was a. We did a walkthrough online, and then we uh, we moved up here. It was fantastic. Well, I've got a lot of envy already. <laughs> I see your face. You know. <laughs> You know, I had a whole, I had a whole other point and then he kept going and talking about how pretty everything was, but you know, I was just going to go back to the point of rent and after COVID, I, we, my company, we, everybody scatters and goes home and we saw no, except for a couple guys, we saw no, uh, drop in productivity from anybody. So for us, it was kind of like, well, why are we going back in the office? And we were just, unfortunately for us, we have a lease that, uh, is going to go on for another eight years. So we can't really do much about it. But if we were rethinking it, we would completely redo how we office right from here on out. Yeah. I went to that office and it was clear that people <laughs> hadn't been trampling those floors for quite a while. And even you said, you're like, I, I don't really ever come in here. I forgot the passcode. Like, right. Yeah. Well, that's true. I, I stood outside our little punch code, you know, for a while trying to remember the pattern of how to get into the back door. But no, Tim, I, I get you about the jealousy piece though a little bit too, because when he's explaining this and he's saying the Bitterroot Valley, which I have no idea where that is, but I guess near Missoula, Montana. We I think about, I've heard songs sung about that place. That sounds I picture right. Yeah. Like the the sound of music or something like that, right? <laughs> but maybe some some very Alpsy mountains in the background. So, John, nonetheless, I, I love the technology story. Um, at my core, I am an energy tech guy, as is Tim. It's what we talk about a lot of the time when we're not recording a podcast. But John's story is, is pretty common, Tim, to a lot of uh, upstream oil and gas founders. He realized that he could put together a data set, and built that data set into a beautiful visual map. But anyways, take us back about 10, 11 years whenever this started. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my uh, my background is, is, a, is a tech guy. So I'm, I, I was a computer science major at UT. I uh, um, have been a programmer. I love programming. I still do. Uh, I probably always will. But uh, but yeah, we were working on some projects at one of the, at the, the last company I was at, and we were trying to do some integrations with public data. And we had just these banging our heads against the wall conversations with the, the powers that be at the time, the amount they wanted to charge us and the limitations of what we could do and where the data could go. And it was just like, this doesn't make any sense. And I'm looking around in the tech space, seeing how industry has kind of moved. Models are a little bit different. You know, the freemium model is pretty commonplace in, in a lot of industries. It was completely non-existent here. Um, the kind of litany of technology options, APIs and all these things, it was just so stunted here. And, and let me guess, somebody says world. there has to be a better way. <laughs> I think that's the start of all these stories. It, There's it got to be a better of, way. No, this is funny because we were like, uh, you know, we'll just go to the sites and grab the data. How hard can it be? Um, and the comical part Sounds is that I've had, oh, yeah, I've had these people come and want to 
these subscribers and grab our data to put in their products and we tell them a price tag and it's it's relatively cheap but then they balk at it and they're like i'll just go get the data myself how hard can it be and i'm like i said the same thing and like five <laughs> years later i barely was getting off the ground with it so it's just it's it's a big undertaking and and since we started in those 10 years there's been half a dozen companies that have come up and gone away trying to do what we're doing um, so it, it's, it's no small feat, but that's it. No, we were just frustrated more than anything. And from a tech standpoint, when you get frustrated, you automatically start thinking about how you're going to build it better. Uh, so that's what we did. That that's really, it's, you know, it came from that kind of frustration It just, it didn't seem like it made any sense. Well, let's get into the details of actually what it is. I mean, I, I don't want to, we know, but I, I don't want the, anyone who's listening to, you know, have to make assumptions. So what, data are you going to get say you do here (laughs) i'm a people person no um (laughs) it's a so yeah you know everybody kind of has this general idea in oil and gas you permit your wells you drill them complete them there's technical data around that then you produce them you get the production data um and all in between there's filings there's all kinds of regulatory documents and you know there's a lot of technical data around it and over the years this data has become more and more public uh, there was a time earlier in my career that this data was a little challenging to get uh, today it's less so um so that's what we do we go out and we have systems that will go out and grab these data this public data uh, from every source out there. And generally it's a state level source, but there are some uh, federal or, or, or US level sources that we deal with as well. Frac Focus being a great example of one. Wait, is, um, it, is it all on the internet? Is it all digitized at this point? Yeah, it's so you'll, the data is mostly digital, especially the stuff that we grab. And then there's a lot, a lot of unstructured data that are in document mm. scans. And we grab those document scans as well. There's some benefit to those. Um, so it, it's kind of a mixed bag, uh, but yeah, there's a lot of it that's been digitized and honestly, most of it's submitted digitally these days. And so it's, uh, just kind of easy. Um, so yeah, we go out and we grab those and, and kind of our big, you know, our big starting point and a big kind of differentiator of how we got our business off the ground is that we, we came at it from a, a tech perspective. So we were going to build all these systems that would automate the entire process. Whereas every, all the major players out there have teams big teams out there grabbing this data, a lot of manual work, Mm. a lot of kind of just annoying, expensive work to do. And we said we would just work on the basis that we'd automate all of it. We'd keep a low head count and we'd pass on the savings to the the end users. And that's how we were going to be different. Um, So yeah, it's, it's everything, basically everything we get our hands on. And and we spidered out just from the regulatory agencies. Now we go to tax agencies, go to university systems, um, USGS, you name it. If the data is out there in the public space, we try to incorporate it into our data set. Yeah. I mean, the, the story makes a lot of sense. You were sitting as a, what's your, are you an engineer? What's your, uh, yeah, a developer. Yeah. That's really de- developer. Computer oh, okay. scientist. He's so, a computer scientist. So in Silicon Valley, they call you an engineer. I was thinking they do. engineer in terms of oil and gas. They throw it out there, though, like engineering oil and gas. You actually have like a certification you can go get. Anybody's a software engineer. It's like what you write software, I'm a software engineer. No. So I'm a programmer. That's like I just keep it simple. (laughs) (laughs) So the the ability to figure out how to automate allowed you to stay lean and, and continues to so many small companies. Didn't make it through the last five years in particular last year, what was it about your business model and your organization that you think was able to not only make you 
survive, but thrive in a, in a down year? So, yeah, I'll give you a few things. One is uh, we never took any capital. And so there was never these kind of crazy expectations that we need to grow at all costs and run in the red, mm. um, which offhand, you know, doesn't sound terrible, except for the fact when you hit years like 2020 and people are losing yep. large amounts of revenue, you're already running in the red, you're laying people off and you just, it's just a, a recipe for disaster. Um, so we didn't have that on us. The automation kept us nice and lean so that we can continue to bring value. And honestly, um, we had customers probably a half dozen or so. So it wasn't crazy. Uh, they reached out to us last year and they said, hey, this is a hard time. We want to keep using your service, but we need to cut some costs. What can you do? And we helped a hundred, everyone that asked, we gave it to them. Um, we, we, recognized, we recognized it was extenuating circumstances. We gave stuff away for free. We gave half off, um, all with the agreement that they would come back and and 100% of them have come back too. So, um, you know, that kind of flexibility. And honestly, I heard horror stories from 2020 about what our competitors have done to people. So um, that was a really nice thing to be able to do. Uh, but then the, the last thing that we did that really kind of insulated us from a, a 2020 kind of nightmare was that we work, we sell to users uh, more so than companies. Now we do enterprise contracts. We have some really big contracts with some really big companies. Um, but uh, we will sell ones and twos. We'll someone come off the street, put a credit card in and get access to it. It's great for small teams, engineers, uh, to the point, you know, about 60% of our revenue comes from that. And so we can afford to lose a customer or two or 10 or 20. Um, and there's a minimal impact because it's just spread out over a much larger user base. So, and the, and the price is, that's, that's the is low enough on a, on a regular basis that, I mean, it, it, it fits in most people's expense account if you're Absolutely. on an individual basis, right? Yeah, like Tim, yeah. we talked about the, the, uh, PDQ to side a bunch, right? They yeah, put yeah. the pricing on the website. Do you have your pricing on the website? Yeah. Everything's completely wide open yeah, and transparent. See, there's, there's a few companies now that are like, this is what it's like in the rest of the universe, where if there's like a transactional software that's on the web and cloud and you can get benefit from it, just, just go ahead and pay us right here. So I think that yeah. model is going to happen more and more the transparency <laughs> model. Otherwise you have no idea what something could cost. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah. So I wanted to go back. You, you're going out to the States and I always focus on production data. That's kind of where I run to, yeah. but the states, they all have a lot of different ways of reporting. I mean, state of Texas, you get data at the lease level, you get uh, gas data or gas production at the well level, Oak or Pennsylvania every, what, six months and Ohio <laughs> is some other increment, you know, to yep. get, are you guys doing anything to that data to make it better? Or are you Absolutely. just reporting straight what's come from the state? No, no you know, we started, um, that way with just kind of, we were going to be the passer. We were going to just aggregate it and make it easy for people to grab the data. And it came very clear, very quick that that was almost useless to most people. Um, so now, yeah, everything in our system goes to per well per month. Um, that being said, we do keep the original reported data everywhere it comes in. So there's no like deleting of what was reported so that you can always trace it back to the source, which I think is pretty important for integrity purposes. But 
Um, but yeah, no, we have to allocate lease level production to wells. You got to take that quarterly production. You got to break it out to months. You got to grab uh, states where they're reported annually. You got to start checking in April when they start making it available. Ones that are quarterly for conventionals and monthly for unconventionals. I mean, so it is a cross the board crazy amount of variables involved. And so our, our system each source gets its own code base and that code base is written to tailored to how that system works. And then it all rolls up to a single model so that all apples, oranges, pears, and grapes get turned into apples and you can run uh, with our system and, and do all the comparisons you need to do. Yeah. Data, data company, data centric makes, makes perfect sense to me. So I want to talk a little bit about the wildcatters because I feel like you hit my radar initially I've known Colin and Jake. I've known Jake probably since 2014. Colin hit the radar maybe 2017. It seems like your company is one that you guys have aligned pretty closely. Were you, were you one of the first people on his um, on his podcast? Yeah, and the first uh, handful for sure. Um, and yeah, we totally met by random. I actually connected with Colin when he posted a uh, a picture of him sitting on top of like freaking Bulbasaur or something, a Pokemon. Um, <laughs> And talking about going to OTC and his wife. Something, Julie had, me, something meme related. Yeah, it was fantastic though. Like it's just, and you know, back then you didn't see that at all. And so it, it really kind of, it hit me. I was like, that's hilarious. I love that people are doing that. And so we connected up and um, next thing I know, Jake's on Well Database and then we're, you know, hopping in and talking. And, you know, I've just been so ready for this industry to have a little bit more of a younger vibe to it. And they really were the ones that were bringing it in. And so um, it doesn't hurt that we get along great. We're great friends. Um, and, you know, we've hung out outside of stuff, you know, multiple times. And so um, they're just good guys. And so, yeah, if, if typically if Digital Wildcatters is doing something, we, we we like to be involved just because it's it's our crowd. It's our type of a our, our kind of, like I said, vibe and, and what we like to do. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Okay. Now hold on though. We're what 17 minutes and a few seconds into, uh, into this podcast. And, uh, I just want to, I just want to understand who's the better set of interviews, Jake and Colin or Tilo and Dr. Funk here. Man, you're going to ask them that on our (laughs) podcast. (laughs) That's fantastic. I'm going to go with the bearded wonder. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I, I like Justin. He's a great guy. I was on his podcast. Not that I guess it's been a while now, but uh, no, you guys are great. But Jake and Colin, you know, theirs was crazy because we just walked in and I was like, what are we going to talk no about? Prep. Like, Whatever. Just hit record and start talking. And they edited nothing out of anything. And it was just a straight kind of bullshit session. So um, it, it was, it was good. It's a good time. But no, I, uh, I've, you guys those it, too. Yeah, that's it. No, it's a uh, drinking is definitely better involved in these things. So, well, I, as Tim can see right here, I've got my hazy IPA. My work week is about to end on on a Friday, and the only thing stopping uh, me from going to Top Golf is this episode. So that's I'm going to go ahead and I'm just kidding. I'm not Cut it short. <laughs> I got too many. <laughs> I got too many questions for you, John. So <laughs> it's interesting, and, and you know the the company that that Well Database is competing against is Inveris, and Veris is a um, a really good leader, I feel like, in in our space as far as continuing to innovate and not just being stagnant, despite being you know a multi billion dollar company. So credit to that. But I've noticed you and your branding, you kind of try to attach yourselves to them. Is it is it just because you you have actually the closest type of product from a, a technology standpoint to the drilling info 
stuff or is it more like IHS? Like where would you say you play and, and why isn't Varus the target? So, you know, attaching is a funny word. And, and maybe, so we try to poke fun at them. Uh, we try to like poke them because they won't respond. They never do. Uh, <laughs> I hear that their people will make personal comments to others, but I can't get anyone on their social media to, to bite on any of our funny stuff we do, but it's all in good fun, you know, no Twitter fights. Can't get a Twitter fight started. um, Me and, uh, and and Alan Gilmer, um, we don't, he won't engage in a fight, but he kind of will go back and forth with me a little bit on Twitter just a couple of times. I like it. I like it. But, uh, but uh, he's, it's his personal, um, but you know, it's funny, uh, you know, DI does not get, or sorry, and Varys does not get called out too much on social media. We did have a, a post on Twitter um, that, that, what did he say? The current workflow, open up IHS, whatever their platform is and try to find a well, close it because it sucks and open well database, find it and done. And uh, they actually tagged IHS in that one. that was really good. But again, they oh. won't bite. No one cares. Um, yeah. But, you know, but no, funny. to answer your question, though, really directly real quick, the, uh, you know, it is it's one of those things people want to relate you, you know, your well database. What do you do? Because the name's not clear enough. Um, you know, and so it's always <laughs> it's like, better you know, than well, drilling info <laughs> for what well, they I, do. I, guarantee, I guarantee you, though, if someone says, oh, so all you do as well as in a database. Well, I actually an, I got you have an I aneurysm. Yeah, I got that comment and they're like, you shouldn't be well database. You should be well reservoir production forecasting database. I'm like, yeah, that name was taken. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Try it. Just no. one word. You know what I yeah. mean? One word as opposed to a full. <laughs> well, and Anyways, I, I, like, <laughs> I like companies that make up words for names too, but you know, we're just going to stick with well database. It was easy. Funk Future's doing that next. I'm going to start nice. making up words. <laughs> it's hard. If you ever try to do it, you start making up words and you're like, what the hell does that mean? Now you start, what you do, you change the CH to a Q and capitalize it, you know, you know those types of things. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. But, uh, but so, no, yeah, yeah, just to familiarity, you're right. But we do try to poke, we, we try to poke both of them just to see, you know, just have a good time with it more than anything. These guys, they do what they do. And I, you know, I have no beef with people who want to use them versus us or anything like that. It's nothing like that. It's just for yeah, it's probably fun. Yeah. It's probably an either or too. Right. I mean, I, I think that, you still want comparative data sets. The way that you go about it is different than the way that other companies go about it. And um, nonetheless, very impressed with, with what you've put together and certainly the business that, that you've built. Um, so wh- why don't you tell me a little bit about sort of the, the energy transition? We, we sit here and, and I mean, maybe it's me in Boulder County, but it seems to be talked about a lot. Um, I hear it very consistently beyond just like ESG being rhetoric. Um, how do you account for that? Is there environmental data that you pull in as well that could be uh, applicable to other industries? Like, what do you view going forward as the, the energy transfer plan as a, as a startup CEO? It's a great question. It is talked about a lot, especially from those inside our industry. You know, when you walk about five feet away, it turns out they don't talk quite so much about it as the news would like you to think. But interesting. Uh, but- but regardless, it's you're one you hit on the nail on the head is environmental data. And well, and I, and I guess I should say our site uh, and our business was never built for ENPs or service companies or financial. It was just about data and finding ways to make it useful to whomever it is. So to be honest with you, we've had environmental groups subscribe to our data and ask to utilize some of the information in their articles. And we just don't care. That's fine. The, the data is what it is. We're not here to necessarily 
you know, we're just trying to be an open and transparent source of data and, and help people do their jobs successfully, whatever that may be. But um, yeah, the environmental data has been actually been a big push from ENPs more than anyone. They're looking for the flaring information, which we have all the disposition information, uh, any emissions data, any spill data. And so we have all of that in our system. We've gone out and made it a point to start grabbing that data to uh, try to facilitate a lot of these groups um, and, and a lot of their you know compliance departments inside them. I mean, there's just not a lot of easy ways to get this data right now. And so we're trying to facilitate that workflow as well. Um, but, you know, the transition too beyond that. You know, that's always it's an ongoing conversation about where it goes and, and where we go from here as far as how we integrate a broader energy um, landscape into our system. And it's honestly still a work in progress as to what that looks like. I mean, you know, those markets are still relatively immature. And from the business side, the transition from on EMPs into alternative energies is very muddy unless you're a, a Shell or an Exxon, you know, so. Um, it's, it's a good question. And, and I think we have some ideas that might be interesting, but it's definitely a work in progress. So when you're talking to your clients, uh, wherever they might be, whatever industry they're in or whatever their angle is, are you getting requests for new types of data or are you actually just going out and finding this data on the, in the public and wherever we're finding it and pulling it in and then offering it? Or are they asking, Hey, we'd really like to see X, Y, Z data more, you know, more of that. Can you go pull that in yeah. or how does that yeah, work? It's, a second. it's it's all by uh, customer driven at this point. In the early days, we did a lot of things on spec and kind of um, what we thought would be interesting, but, uh, but you're exactly right. I mean, we specifically have, you know, uh, in this case, a decent size, a mid, mid-major um, ENP, you know, start asking us specifically around spill data and it kind of opened our eyes to the uses and what they were going through right. as a company. And that's when we decided to make it a point to grab that data. So a lot of our stuff is customer driven. Um, And so that goes from our site features to the data we access. And um, so we we try to be responsive in that regard. I mean, something like spill data, let's just being honest as a human being, that should be like toward the top of the list, right? (laughs) Yeah, sure. You get your forecast that does this, but like how much oil did we just spill into, you know, (laughs) this this ditch or this, this river in the middle of nowhere here. Right. I mean, that's, that seems like significant data. And and I've noticed just in my time selling to oil and gas companies, there there's, you know, two things that will influence their decisions. Primarily it's um, money when prices are good or pain hits a certain threshold. And some of the pain that I've noticed has been around being fined for either reporting the wrong data whether it be environmentally incorrect, whether there's data missing that can't be validated. And, and that becomes a huge deal. So the data play, I think like most, you got into it to figure this is going to be helpful for me, but now mm-hmm. you still embrace and see the bigger vision. Um, so I'm curious, is, is this sort of how you expected things to go when you started this? Or did you think you were just replacing your job? Oh man, that's a great question. No, I am. Um... You know, there's a few things I expected when I started, and I think they're pretty common to startup founders that uh, completely were wrong. Um, we were pretty sure we were going to build a great product, and and then it was just we were going to hit go and, and deploy it, and then everybody was going to flock to us because you know we're so great. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, that took a, you know, that's I guess that's really relevant for this podcast because you, the sales and marketing side for startups is is hugely underestimated from the technical co-founder standpoint. I see it. See there, Jeremy, 
Wait, what's that? We sorry, are important. Can you say that again? Could you say it a little we bit are louder important. for the people in the back? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, you but, know, this could lead into a whole nother conversation that I might bring this up in a minute, but you know, it, it all, it, this all comes from the fact that the tech people hate salespeople. And so that's a whole dynamic that I'd love to explore with you guys. But, uh, it, it goes back to the 1940s when there were potentially some bullies and one of them turned into a you, sales come guy. On. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's in here. I'm, I, I want to drill into that point because I, I live it. Um, engineers, I'm going to talk, you know, just computer scientists, petroleum engineers, you know, civil engineers. One of the things that we're inherently trained on, you don't trust data and you, you're skeptical of every number that comes out. And the perception is that sales guys are trying to trick you with numbers and, 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 take you out. And so the, the, the tech, technical teams have to be skeptical of anything that's not technical. And so I think that there's this inherent built-in distrust of the sales process because it's manipulating and it's not based on numbers when surely you're in the tech world, the technology should win. So there is an, it's an interesting nice thing to kind of transition. Uh, and, and I think that's the, the, at least the niche that I try to carve out in, in the way I operate is, you know, I do come from the sales side, but with that technical background. So I like to think I can communicate between the two groups. doesn't always work. I think you've, th th that's a great perspective because I think you've got, I guess if there's three things we're talking about, which is sales in general, then being some level of engineer in oil and gas, and then being some sort of manager, right? I mean, you, you've got all these different things that you need to balance and how you talk to a vice president of engineering is surely different than the way you talk to a CFO versus the CEO or COO of a small company, right? Like they're, they're all comped on different things. They're all interested in, in, in different outcomes. Right? Yeah, or so I'm the, sure you have a different talk track. Exactly. And I think the, the, when you see a CRO, a chief revenue officer show up in a, a tech company, you have yet a whole nother set of language you have to, to be able to navigate. Yeah. Like pretty sure we know what they're responsible for. Yeah. <laughs> it's not you not buying. <laughs> so, but, and you know, I, I bring this up because internally, you know, when we're at, you know, my history, we were skeptical of the sales internally to our company. We knew they were going out and they would say whatever the customer needed to hear to buy something and then hand it off to us to deliver it and figure that out. It's like, it's your problem. Um, that's the perception at least. And, and, and I think that kind of fed into that along with our personal experiences with the third party sales of other vendors, kind of like, you know, these guys, how do we avoid um, needing them? And, and so that's, I think kind of fed our part of our startup, you know, our strategy is, you know, that we don't need that. And it was totally wrong. I, I tell anybody who, who thinks that or that you're, you're absolutely wrong. You have to have it. But, you know, finding that balance and finding the right people that you don't yeah. want to strangulate. It's the is, right people. It's yes. the right. I, yeah, I mean, I was just going to pull that back a little bit, even to the Energy Navigator days. Like w when I left Energy Navigator, it was like painful. Like I know it was painful for Tim a little bit too. It's because the environment that was fostered was like cultural was going to matter. Personality fits matter. And oftentimes that can overcome money, <laughs> you know, yeah. more travel. Yeah. Uh, more expectations, whatever it may be. And, you know, I, I know that that's something important that Tim has fostered. I, I sense the same thing from you, John. So, I mean, certainly as a subscription-based cloud company in oil and gas, 
you have people coming at you to invest, but do you feel like the longer term play is to just continue to grow this thing and, and eat more market share? Uh, it's obviously, you know, one that's been pretty effective for us. Now, we don't grow as fast as anybody else. And that's always a, a challenge, especially whenever you take a step back and you try to evaluate, you know, I mean, any any founder of a company is going to look at a potential exit valuations and things like that. And your trajectory of revenue is a very big um a very big parameter in that. And so it, it always is a, a give and take, you know, obviously what we've done has worked well. It's insulated us from a lot of, of probably frustration from, you know, you know, we are the bosses. Now you take money, you're, you're, you're going to have a boss in some fashion. Um, and then also, yeah, uh, I like that. but you're also going to be able to invest and create a lot of your dreams. Cause I mean, our, our list of things we'd love to do is about a hundred pages long. And so we had some capital, you know, we, we might knock that out or get something going that way, but it's uh it is, it's a give and take. And it's always this evaluation of, of what your, you know, ideal trajectory. And so I think we'd like to find a mid ground um, where, you know, we are able to grow responsibly, but then, you know, potentially take on some, some capital uh, and utilize it responsibly. Don't try to be one of these Silicon Valley nut jobs that, that just blow through capital like crazy because you got it. Um, so I, I think, like most things. It works if you can go public. I mean, I I, I get you. The the challenge in oil and gas is none of, I mean, energy tech in general, like there's very few companies that go public. So, I mean, I'm really hopeful for a company like Inveris to to go public and establish at least a bar because they've kind of gone about it by acquiring the better companies and (laughs) continuing to grow and add value to it. So, I mean, I'm hopeful. I hear a lot of rumors. I've heard rumors about them for years and years, but I truly would be interested in, um, seeing what the valuation is that they get when they go public. Cause I think it sets a bar then for yeah. like, you know, you have an idea of what your company's worth, but you don't really know what your company's worth until somebody wants to pay for it. That's yeah. why the public markets are great because they establish what that exact metric is. And we're all data guys. We, we get that. Go no, exactly. Me. And I think with this recent developments with them that you probably will see it in the next 18 months. And, and so, um, yeah, that's the only explanation for what you're seeing with uh, the ownership changes there. Uh, so it would be interesting to see. It's a tough, I know everybody's looking at it and thinking, what are the public markets? What's the perception of our industry and how will that affect our ability to have a positive IPO? You know, that's a challenge, but that's one thing you just got to get through. Yeah. And I think going, yeah, yeah, I've always wrestled with, you know, do you want to grow super fast? And if you go pull in, the private equity money, you're going to have to grow really fast, you know, because they're, I guess we found out on our podcast uh, when we interviewed David, as soon as the private equity puts money in, they want to start talking about how they get that money back. And right. so that's going to be, you know, some form of an exit or a, a rollover or go public. And if you're taking the slow growth mode, you're just not going to last long. So there's going to be a lot of pressure to move and maybe at the detriment to the culture you're trying to build and the product you're trying to get out there and the reputation you're trying to have in the market. I don't know Tim, you- geez, it's Friday afternoon. Give the guy a chance to breathe. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've been, I've been peppering John. Drink. No, it's good. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's true. We, we, exactly right. Right. we do encourage it on the show. We do. We do. <laughs> Nice. No, you're exactly right though. It's, it's, and that's, you know, to be honest, this is not, you know, the first time uh, we've considered with capital, what what we want to do. And every time we come around to some of these conclusions, you know, we don't want a full-time job of raising capital, which it is. And then we don't want the kind of restrictions and expectations that go along with capital. We're trying to build a company, not flip it. And so, 
um, you yeah. know, maybe that changes. Maybe we decide one day we want to have an 18 month or 24 month exit, take capital, blow it up and then try to get it sold. I mean, you can do those things. It's just it. our goal from day one was to try to make something better, to try to improve, you know, what we saw was a, a pain point in the industry. And so, um, you know, those things, to me, at least, they, they conflict with each other. So either you're trying to build yeah. a solid product that does good for your industry or you're trying to flip it. And if you're flipping it, a lot of times it's house and cards, smoke, house of cards and smoke and mirrors and, and then get someone to buy it and run. All right. So let's take it back to full circle. What's winter in the Bitterroot Valley like? You know, <laughs> this is comical. So, okay, for those of you who don't know, uh, Missoula is uh, western Western Montana, um, and so we have we're in a valley. So we have a uh, a mountain range, the Bitterroot Mountains on the west, and the Sapphires on the east. And we're in this valley where it's actually referred to, I think, kind of comically, but they say they call it the Banana Belt of Montana because we, I believe, the average snowfall here for the entire year is about twelve inches. Um, so. It's uh, when we came in here, when we drove in, so we bought our house in late last year, but we actually didn't get here until early 2021. Um, we got in and it was 55 degrees and we are in, you know, January, early February and it's, you know, t-shirt weather and really nice. Um, and then our moving truck arrived for us to unload and the temperatures dropped to about 10 below. And we got about that foot go. of snow they talked about. So it was a good time. Okay. It was, oh, a, not, it was a, we're so not Houston anymore, Toto. Yeah. So the foot no. of snow happens in one day? Uh, it was two days. <laughs> it, was, it was two days. Um, and it all happened. And it was like the snow got there and then the truck arrived. And so I had my first experience with, uh, and by the way, you have four days to unload this truck. And we had to do it in this foot of snow and in the sub-zero weather. And again, you know, I just left Texas where it was, I mean, it had to be in the sixties. And so That's anyway, it was a trial by fire. It was a good time. And you've got your snow shovel now? I've got two of them, but I've got kids. I've got four sons. And so there you um, go. I'm not shoveling anything. Got four sons. So which one of these sons is taking over the business? Oh, uh, Oh, uh, that's a great question. They don't want to they, they don't want to be programmers. So you know what? I have my my second oldest wants to be a game developer. So he and I yeah. are working on building a video game. It's programming. It's fantastic. Uh, Maybe you can work for him. That's I'm hoping. Oh my god, that'd be fantastic. He'll <laughs> be like, Dad, those boomer skills don't pay off here in, in our space. <laughs> Anyways, John Farrell, we'll let you get on to the uh, Bitterroot Valley Brewery or whatever it is that you do on a on a weekend, beautiful day up there, and and really appreciate you coming on. Um, educating the masses and um, telling people what you got going. It's impressive. No, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, it was a good time. Next time I will have you guys up here. We'll do this live in Montana. Oh, oh, on the way. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>